I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Apiango Line, a podcast dedicated to the unique heritage and local culture of the Upper Madawaska and Apiango River Valleys here in the ancient and snowy wilds of eastern Ontario, Canada. First off, we hope you all had a great day beginning yesterday morning, getting up bright and early, even before the sunrise, and finding something under the tree for each and every one of you. It's a great day, indeed, when the whole household awakens in that darkest hour, just before dawn, and, in the chilly early morning silence, begins to hear the joyful noise of giddy children discovering once again that there truly is a Santa Claus. So many toys, so many presents, and so many things to play with, and not even having to change out of our pajamas until noon. Mind you, despite those wonderful things that show up under the tree on Christmas morning, there are always, how shall we put this tactfully, those secret moments we sometimes find ourselves thinking when we suddenly discover that Santa Claus is getting on in years, if not getting a tad forgetful. With a grimace that we often try to hide, we occasionally learn on Christmas morning that Santa didn't quite remember to bring us that thing we were devoutedly hoping for, or that he should have known we desperately thought or needed, or maybe it turned out to be not the right color or size. So we try to suppress our little crestfallen disappointment, if not get a grip on that rising sense of our own embarrassing selfishness. Every child knows it's bad form to stare a gift horse in the mouth, so most of us, Even young children decide in their emerging maturity right then and there that it's probably best to just grin and bear it. It is, after all, Christmas, and it's enough that we got anything at all left under the tree, what with all the horrific stories that our grandparents often told us about their threadbare Christmas mornings when they had to suffer through the dirty 30s or the Second World War. Those Christmases when they only got a half-rotten orange or a solitary banged-up dinky toy or, God forbid, a pair of hand-me-down galoshes they had to share with their sister. The horror. The horror. No, it's never a good idea to bellyache about what we didn't get on Christmas morning or what Santa Claus might have forgotten to leave us under the tree. The glass must always be half full. It's never good to see it half empty. Or is it? We have for your curious enjoyment on this fine Boxing Day 2021 a unique story of a certain little boy who woke up in downtown Barry's Bay on Christmas morning 1964, some 57 years ago yesterday, and soon found his glass possibly more than half empty. Now, all his presents, the usual stuff that most 10-year-old boys wanted from Santa Claus back in their balmy days of the mid-1960s, those Christmas presents were all there, all neatly piled up, so he could easily find them under the tree next to those of his five brothers and one sister. No, everything was there, except one essential thing so necessary, he thought, for his Christmas morning happiness that without it, Well, Christmas was just, it just felt amiss. He intuitively understood that very moment he discovered his one missing ingredient of Santa's failure to make it appear under that tree that morning. Well, it had the makings of turning both Christmas Day and Boxing Day into the worst of times. And yet, and yet by the end of the very next day, that little boy's world of worst day ever had turned topsy-turvy and that Boxing Day ended up being his 
best of times, and not because he found the missing ingredient. Indeed, the one thing he didn't get that Christmas morning, his missing ingredient, he soon discovered it really didn't matter. His happiness, rather, was dependent upon something entirely different and something he wasn't even looking for. We've already heard from this little boy on an earlier podcast this past August about how he grew up in Barry's Bay as one of those boys of summer. So he's back again with two more personal essays about those wild days in our little village as he knew it in the 1960s. And boy, what stories! Who knew so much could happen in just two days? And right here, in Barry's Bay. So here is the executive producer of the Opiongo line, Barry Conway, with those worst of times and best of times. Two separate memoirs, if you like, or in a phrase, what it felt like to be a 10-year-old boy during that Christmas in 1964. The first one is called Batteries Not Included. Imagine, if you will, a small boy in grade 5 spending every waking moment from the beginning of school in September through until that darkest hour just before dawn Christmas morning. Imagine him wondering, hoping, praying, and trying without much success to be as good as his mom and dad, his parish priest, and especially his teacher, Sister Mary the Cross, expected him to be. Imagine that same boy waking up with childish excitement Christmas morning, sneaking downstairs in the darkest hour before dawn, only to discover that under the tree there were, in fact, presents with his name on them, piled high and wide, and all presumably left there by old St. Nick. And yet, and yet, with the coming of glorious daylight, all but one of his presents fail to work as God and the Eaton's and Sears Christmas catalogs had promised, if not intended. How so, you ask? Well, everyone born in the 20th century knew that few modern toys worked without first installing their requisite batteries. But because Santa Claus was obviously born long before the 20th century, you couldn't really expect him to show up, leave all those presents, and have enough presence of mind to also leave batteries enough to make a new toy railroad or transistor radio or camera with its very own flash work properly without those batteries. Luckily for me, however, on that particular Christmas morning in 1964, Santa did have enough sense to leave one toy, something called a Johnny 7, that required no batteries whatsoever. It was an imaginary super-duper army rifle requiring not even one battery, even though it had armor-piercing shells, a bunker buster, an anti-tank rocket, and a grenade launcher, along with a whole lot of other bells and whistles able to fully launch any kid into an imaginary world where he could be the hero of his very own war movie. In fact, that Johnny 7 was enough to distract me for a few hours as I contemplated storming the neighborhood in our continuous winter war game, simply dubbed Fight for the Heights. Still, that euphoria induced by my Johnny 7 didn't last. There was only so many hours Christmas morning that I could spend under the kitchen table shooting at my imaginary enemies as my mother above tried to prepare Christmas dinner. Eventually, seated at the kids' table for that Christmas dinner, I was again crestfallen, for I knew there was no hope any longer in getting those new toys working on Christmas Day. Everybody I asked said the same thing. They had no batteries at all, or they had none to spare. Worse, 
They all thought it would be at least 24 hours before any retail store in Barry's Bay would open up again. So I was left with their honest if harsh advice. Just grin and bear it. For there was no way to beg, borrow, or steal, let alone buy a single AA, AAA, C, or D-sized battery. At least not until Boxing Day, when Jason's or maybe Anna's might open up for a few hours. Of course, by grade five, I was beginning to stomp around town like I owned the place, being self-employed with my own paper route. I pretty well knew all the retail stores in town that might sell batteries, and I was pretty confident I'd find at least one that would sell me what I desperately wanted. Still, I also harbored that secret guilt that every pint-sized business owner knows, of knowing that I should have been smarter than apparently I was. The same thing had happened the previous year, waking up Christmas morning with new toys and no batteries, and the year before that. You'd think a self-employed paper boy would know better by the time he was in grade five. Though to be fair, I also figured if Santa Claus himself couldn't remember to arrange a mitt full of fresh batteries on Christmas morning, why should anyone expect anything better from a little kid? Still, I fancied myself no ordinary kid. I was old enough to know that Santa Claus was a little scatterbrained and should not be trusted no matter how thoughtful his Christmas presents might be. He had been jilting me for years with no batteries at Christmas. It was always the same old story. I'd get the Sears and Eaton's Christmas catalogs on the first day of autumn, just after school had started, and we were all back kicking the shins out of each other in the schoolyard, playing soccer. And then there were all those distractions. Thanksgiving, playing football on the back 40, hunting for rabbits with my slingshot, netting whitefish on the Big Eddy, getting ready for Halloween taking weeks to eat all the candy I scored on Halloween, raking those frigging leaves that blew all over Kingdom Come, piling wood, practicing for the Christmas concert, getting ready for ice fishing and the upcoming peewee hockey season, to say nothing of looking after my two part-time jobs, paper boy for the Toronto Star, and altar boy down at the new St. Lawrence O'Toole's Church. It had no end of masses, funerals, weddings, and benedictions to serve, and that's not even counting work as slave labor at those parish bingos to help pay for that new church. Still, Father O'Brien had asked me to serve my first midnight mass that Christmas in 1964, and I managed not to fall asleep or pass out as I did the summer before, fainting in front of the whole parish. It had been a hell of a great show at Midnight Mass. Folks dressed to the nines, crammed into seats like sardines, all smiling and grinning like they were feeling no pain. Best of all was Dr. Smith's wife, Ethel. She might have been way up at the back of the choir loft, but when she first started to belt out, Oh Holy Night, it was like Christmas morning had suddenly arrived. Even I got all choked up. Boy, could she sing and make you feel like Santa Claus was already on his way. Sleigh overflowing with presents, but I knew right about then he'd not have a single battery on board. Suffice it to say this battery thing had been gnawing at me for years, and so really I had nobody to blame but myself. Sure, I was only ten years old and Santa Claus was maybe a thousand years old, but at least he had an excuse. He was an old geezer, so he was supposed to forget things. And he was consistent. Every year he showed up, he'd come down the chimney, empty out his big toy bag, and never once forget me. And every year, after wolfing down those milk and cookies I left for him, he'd always remember to feed the carrots to Rudolph and the boys. But, well, every year he consistently forgot my batteries. But what's a guy to do on Christmas morning? 
I couldn't mope about complaining about the old coot. He did his job, mostly, like I did my dozen or so jobs as a ten-year-old kid, mostly. I really tried to be good as much as I really tried all through autumn not to forget to use some of my paperboy money to buy a stack of frigging batteries just in case old St. Nick forgot them, like I knew he would. So it was as much my fault as it was his. No point in crying over spilt milk, even if there was no spilt milk to cry over. Boy, could that old guy eat. Never left anything but crumbs. Even the carrots. The reindeer always chewed them right down to the green tops. But I guess if I had that much lugging around on rooftops all over the world to do in a single night, I'd be hungry as all get out as well. No, it was no use wandering around like some sad sack. I was old enough to put a brave face on it, or at least pretend like I was enjoying myself. So I started playing with this new purple and black scarf I got under the tree. I swear it was twelve feet long, with a matching toque just as long. My Aunt Olive had given it to me, and so I just smiled and looked like I was having a whole lot of fun because it didn't require any batteries. So there I was, lollygagging about the house with nothing to do except wait for just one good store to open up on Boxing Day. One way or another, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other, watching the clock. Tick-tock, 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 waiting for the second hand to rise to the top and then fall down again to the bottom, minute after minute, hour after hour. Finally, I gave myself a shake and wandered into the living room. When my father starts talking about his glory days, when he himself was only ten years old. He was born in 1917, and so it must have been Christmas 1927 he was gassing on about. But what a Christmas that must have been! He'd come down from the old homestead near Bark Lake for midnight mass at St. Lawrence O'Toole's. His mother and brothers and sisters were all with him in the back of the sleigh, with his father driving on a pair of horses through the snow, huffing and puffing with their sleigh bells jangling, and they had to sit through not one but two midnight masses, a big one and some little one they had right afterwards. He said they never even got home until after two in the morning, but instead of all going to bed and giving Santa time to land on the roof, they all sat up for a big feed of roast pork until well after three in the morning. Imagine that. My dad never talked about what he got that morning when he was ten years old, but I never got the impression, being a farm kid, that he got very much of anything on Christmas mornings. Still, did he go on about something that sounded even better? In the 1920s and 30s, and even during the Second World War, my dad said all of Berry's Bay and the people all over the countryside, they had more than just midnight mass to look forward to at Christmas. There was this big party, he said, that lasted from Christmas Day to what people called Little Christmas or the Feast of the Epiphany on January 6th. It was this annual Christmas bazaar, and it was centered in the basement of St. Hedwig's Church. That Christmas bazaar would be crawling with everybody having a great old time for weeks on end. All sorts of food and drinks, games for kids to play, but the big attraction was this wild card tournament that went on for days. They'd set up tables and sometimes they'd play a single game that would continue on until the next night or even the next night after that. It wasn't poker or bridge or even euchre or anything like that, he said. Gambling with money was not allowed. Anyway, this card game that everybody was mad about playing back then was something called 45, and the reason everybody wanted to play it was because the best 45 player could win one heck of a prize. And one year, who should win that prize but none other than my dad's dad, my grandfather, who had settled near Bark Lake back in the 1860s. And what a prize! 
It was a brand new Philco radio donated to the bazaar by Charlie and Dan Murray, who ran C&D Murray's store across from the train station in Barry's Bay. My dad said when his father won that prize, it was like the whole family had died and gone to heaven. Of course, it took a couple of days to get the radio all set up. John O'Manick, who ran the Murray O'Manick sawmill just below St. Hedwig's, he and his son Joe had to come up to the farm to string up the aerial, which turned out to be a real mess of copper wire strung around the rooftop of the old farmhouse and into some nearby trees. And given that nobody in the countryside had any electricity back then, that old Philco radio could only operate on a mess of dry cell batteries. And wouldn't you know it, back then those batteries were included as part of the prize, so the O'Manics hooked them up as well. It was about at that time in my dad's story I almost got up and left. I really didn't want to hear about somebody who got their batteries. But I guess I just sucked it up and stayed. It was just too interesting to leave right at that moment. So once this Philco radio was set up, the front parlor of my dad's old farmhouse, well, it was pretty much packed every Saturday and Sunday night. He said the whole town would show up to listen to the Carter family, caterwauling their sad old C&W songs, or Foster Hewitt doing his play-by-play of the Stanley Cup, or maybe everybody going hog-wild listening to the World Series. He said it was real interesting to hear boxing matches, especially when Joe Louie knocked the daylights out of Max Schmeling just before the Second World War. My dad said he even got to listen to that famous radio play in 1938, the one that scared the bejeepers out of everybody because they thought the Martians had landed in New Jersey. And Christmas music. My dad said his mother just loved to listen to that crackling old Philco during the war when Bing Crosby might be singing songs like White Christmas. Of course, I knew by 1964, those big old Christmas bazaars had practically faded away. There were no more sleigh rides into town for midnight mass with those sweet bells jangling, and most everybody who wanted it had electricity. Even the farmers out in the countryside got it. My dad's old farmhouse got electric lights and all the fixings in 1958. But by 1964, there was only this tiny little bazaar left, and it was put on for only one night, about a week before Christmas. It was held in the basement of the old St. Joseph's High School, and I remember my dad taking me there. Everybody seemed to be crammed into that tiny basement, and I think you could get something to eat or drink. But the real attraction for us kids back then in the 60s was something called Santa's Fish Pond. You'd pay a quarter and somebody would give you a fishing rod with this oversized hook and you'd cast it over a wall made of shower curtains all tacked together. The idea was you were trying to fish on the other side without seeing what was on the other side. But if you cast your hook over those curtains, somebody you couldn't see would grab your line and hook it onto a ribbon wrapped around a gift. Then they'd give your line a tug, as if you had a fish biting, and you'd reel it up over the top of those old mangy shower curtains. The next thing you know, you didn't have a fish. You had a real live Christmas present. Still, I remember the real joy of that Christmas bazaar in 1964 was watching my father. He usually would end up edging over towards that one little corner where there were still a few card tables. Nowhere near as many as before, he said. But he pointed out the best game going, and it always involved John Blesky. My dad said John had been playing 45 way back at those early Christmas bazaars, and he got real good at it. He was a plumber by trade, but he had a great reputation for playing 45, as well as singing at Polish wakes. And I must say, watching John Blesky that night winning a hand at 45 was a wonder to behold. Just when you swore his poker face was unbreakable like some chiseled stone, he let out this gigantic laugh, bigger than even Santa Claus. 
I remember wanting to hear some more stories from my dad that Christmas day, but eventually my mom showed up with all her Christmas baking, especially her Christmas cake. And since I was the only one of her four older boys who helped her make that cake every year during the Grey Cup, I felt a professional obligation when I saw all its glazed cherries and almonds and candied pineapple pieces and that wicked thick white icing. Whenever she put down another plate for our house guest to nibble on Christmas day, I made sure when she wasn't looking I'd sneak most of what was on that plate and wolf it down like I was Santa Claus hog of the milk and cookies before heading back outside to the rooftop. Still it wasn't easy. There were other things I had to do to distract myself from thinking about those missing batteries, like chocolates. On Christmas Day, there seemed to be more boxes of chocolates around the house than kids who needed to be swatted away like pesky mosquitoes. Mind you, by late evening, it was time to rifle the medicine cabinet for those precious pink bottles of Pepto-Bismol. There's only so many chocolates, cookies, and Christmas cake a kid can eat in one day, to say little of the humongous heapings of turkey and mashed potatoes all slurried together with gallons of gravy and peas and corn and cranberries and stuffing. Oh, that stuffing. It was to die for. And by the end of Christmas Day, that's usually how I felt. I was stuffed worse than a goose and was ready to die. I could barely waddle upstairs and go to bed. Talk about a real bellyache. Still, by bedtime that Christmas day in 1964, I was pretty happy. Somehow I'd managed to distract myself from thinking about those friggin' batteries. But first thing Boxing Day, as soon as I was certain I wasn't going to throw up all over myself and could drag myself out of bed, I shot like a rocket downstairs and got permission to pull on my winter boots and coat and that infernal 12-foot-long black and purple toque and scarf combo that my mom said I absolutely had to wear outside until at least my aunt left town after the holidays. Well, fashion was never my forte, so I really couldn't have cared less. Besides, it was Boxing Day, and I had a pocket full of paperboy money, and so I was out the door and down the street, fast on the hunt. First, I headed for the dairy bar. It was open and staffed that morning by Burnham, my favorite waitress, because she was one of the nicest people any kid from Barry's Bay could ever hope to know. But she was running around like a chicken with her head cut off, trying to satisfy a restaurant full of husbands and fathers and uncles and grandfathers, all trying to get the hell away from their visiting in-laws and outlaws, all pretty much having a cigarette pack or two and a couple of dozen black coffees each, and all listening to Bill Hoffman scream at the likes of me, Get the hell out of here, kid! I've got no goddamn batteries and no goddamn interest in stocking any goddamn batteries, and goddamn it, can't you leave a man in peace for at least one day of the year, goddammit? Bill always had a way with words, but it seemed to be the same words, goddammit. Still, Bill was as harmless as Santa Claus himself. I was only a kid, but I was a regular at the dairy bar, meaning I was there almost every day, usually just before 5.45 p.m., when the Toronto bus was scheduled to drop off the newspapers that I delivered. But every so often, and this was one of those days, I'd be sitting there twirling myself around on one of those light bluish-green dairy bar counter stools, chatting up Berna, and Bill would come roaring out of the back refrigeration room. He'd spot me, raise his fist, and then he'd chase me outside just to let me know who was the boss, especially if I was letting Berna pinch my cheeks and taking up what Bill called his valuable real estate, any seat inside the dairy bar that could be filled by a paying customer instead of some nuisance paper boy with not enough money for a real meal. Still, even when Bill Hoffman swore at me, he'd often wink, 
just to let me know there was no hard feelings. He was just a businessman trying to make an honest buck, and sometimes I felt like that wink was his way of acknowledging that I was also a businessman. I had my own paper route, and so I figured it was his way of showing me professional courtesy, letting me know there was nothing personal in all that screaming. It was only business. Whatever it was, off I went to Anna Shell Station. She was a Toronto Star customer of mine, but if I wasn't careful, Anna was just as prone to put the bum's rush on me for littering up her place as well. Only she never swore, though she did say she had a broom in her back kitchen with my name on it. Whatever the case, on that particular boxing day, Anna was sweet as pie and real interested in talking to anyone, even little kids like me. But no, she had no batteries. On Christmas Eve, she had sold out the whole kit and caboodle that I needed. But if I needed a 9-volt battery, she was not unhappy to unload it at a fair price. I shook my head, but that's when she decided, I guess, to go in for the kill. Hey, kid, shouldn't you have been in here Christmas Eve with all those other smarter kids, buying them batteries up like I was having a fire sale? Use your noggin next time if you have one. I just looked at her, my ears steaming. What's wrong, she said. Cat got your tongue? I didn't really respond and just decided all the same to head for the front door. And That's when she started to tell me there was somebody she thought might have what I was looking for. She then came to the front door and pointed me in the right direction. But I'd learned long ago, Anna might be a wonderful businesswoman like Bill Hoffman. But boy, her sense of direction was way off. From the looks of where she was pointing me, she was trying to send me down into the middle of Mansky Swamp. Every little kid back then knew there was nobody selling batteries down there. So for the rest of that afternoon, I just kept tramping all over town, back and forth, along mostly empty streets with few cars on the road and fewer people walking the streets. Sometimes the whole town seemed so empty it felt like I was the only one alive. The smart money, as Anna called it, was all at home where they knew they belonged in Boxing Day. But hope springs eternal in the breast of a little boy, so maybe there was a place open. I just had to find it. I walked along Stafford Street to Murray's store, it was closed, then up along Main Street to Yakabuski's Hardware. I was hoping Roseanne might be on the cash register. She was like Berna at the dairy, one of those wonderful employees who seemed to take a shine to little lost boys. Every time my dad sent me down to Yakabuski's with money enough to buy the end off of something, it was always Roseanne who took me aside and helped figure out what in tarnation I was supposed to get. For crying out loud, she'd say, who sends a kid to find a three-quarter gasket with a reverse thread in a place like this with tens of thousands of doodads and thingamajigs? What's your dad going to ask for next, a bucket of blue steam? But there was no Roseanne that boxing day. Yakabuski's hardware store was closed for the Christmas holidays. So on to Stedman's, then Lorraine's Pharmacy, then across the road to the old B.A. gas station. There was nothing doing in any of them. Some lights were on, but nobody was home. It wasn't hard to see why. The wind was getting up and snow was blowing in every direction and the sidewalks were all getting drifted over. Main Street, Barry's Bay started to feel like that scene in It's a Wonderful Life when everything goes all to hell and Jimmy Stewart starts thinking he'd be better dead than alive. Even Mrs. Bing, who usually could be counted on to be out in such weather, I'd see her every morning just before 7 a.m. on my way down to serve Mass at St. Lawrence O'Toole's. Even in the dead of winter, she'd be there on the sidewalk in what looked like her black silk pajamas, sweeping away the snow with her broom, smiling at me as I passed. But that boxing day, even Mrs. Bing had taken the day off. 
The sidewalk in front of Bing's restaurant was so full of snowdrifts I couldn't hardly get through, and Bing's had no more life inside than Jim Lum's restaurant around the corner and just back of the old Windsor Hotel. As I passed that old hotel, it looked positively dilapidated, something that Lionel Barrymore, who played Mr. Potter in that Jimmy Stewart movie, might have owned and run into the ground had Jimmy never lived. I didn't even bother to try the door at Jim Lum's place. Even if it was open, I knew he didn't sell batteries. I was still pretty confident, though. I had not one but four aces up my sleeve. If Bill Hoffman's Dairy Bar and Anna's Shell Station were the heart and soul of Barry's Bay back in the 1960s, the four Paul Beskys were its four aces. Stanley, Eddie, Jason, and Leonard Paul Besky ran four very different retail stores in Barry's Bay, but all of them were where you felt you could get awful lucky. Like Julian Hearn's store and the two Coolest's store, they were all serious contenders in the local retail trade. But the Paul Beskys were always a cut above everybody else. For one, they always seemed to be open even when they were closed. And all four stores often sold more than they could advertise or even a 10-year-old boy had any right to expect. Stanley Paul Besky, for instance, ran his store near the corner of Inglis and Dunn, across from where Puddler's father had his ice shack. If Stanley didn't have something in stock, he could get it. No questions asked, lickety-split. One time I was in there and Buster, a cousin of mine, comes in and asks if he could buy an elephant. Funny you should ask, says Stanley. Just sold my last one not five minutes ago, but I expect more in later today. Should be here before closing time. Now that was impressive, especially to a kid. I must have waited around for days waiting to see that elephant, but I guess I got distracted and Buster picked it up and took it home before I had a chance to see it. Sad to say on Boxing Day, Stanley's store wasn't open. Nor was Eddie's shoe store, right next to Stanley's place, and where you wouldn't think he'd be selling batteries, but a lot of people around town said Ed was a lot like Stanley. You could buy things at Ed's shoe store, especially on Sunday when it was closed, that you'd never expect he'd be able to sell. He was that good. As for Leonard Palbeski, he had a store, really three stores in one, a clothing store, a general store, and a small lunch bar beside the old BA gas station. But sad to say, he was closed as well. So there was only my last resort, usually the best of the four aces, Jason Palbeski's general store on Main Street, a place that embodied the true Christian spirit. Jason ran a store where the first usually got served last and the last got served first. So on Boxing Day 1964, I knew in my heart of hearts that if you were a kid who really wanted batteries any size at the lowest price, especially on Boxing Day, Jason Palbeski was your man. Something, though, and I don't know exactly what, kept me from making a beeline straight up Main Street for Jason's. Call it cold feet, which I definitely had given that the temperature had fallen well below zero, or call it nerves. Maybe I just couldn't face the possibility of my hopes being dashed. Intuitively, I knew Jason should have been the first store I should have tried. It was bound to be the only one open on Boxing Day, so it felt like bad karma that I should leave it to the very last. I'd somehow betrayed the spirit of Jason's, or maybe even insulted the battery gods by not going there right off the bat. Whatever it was, I decided I had better do my penance first, so I headed on down Dunn Street to Julian Hearn's, only to find his store was closed, then back down along Bay Street to Coolis's store, closed as well, and finally back up to the other Coolis's store on Main Street, but it too was closed. Finally, I took a deep breath and a gander up towards the heavens where I could see the afternoon was growing dark and evening had started to come on. And then for some reason, I really started to lose my nerve. 
I so much wanted to run across the main street to the always inviting front door of Jason Palbeski's general store, but it seemed almost like a bridge too far. If it wasn't open, I may as well not even go home. That was Barry Conway with his personal essay, Batteries Not Included. But lest you think that particular Boxing Day in 1964 ended badly for him, you would be wrong. In fact, that memorable day did end up the best of times. Here is his second essay, The Old Grey Lady, a story, he says, is about the real meaning of Christmas. Let's just say that by 5 p.m. Boxing Day 1964, the retail trade, as it was then known in Barry's Bay, had left me high and dry. The Dairy Bar, Anna's, even the Four Aces, all had gone dark and were done for the day. Still, Boxing Day was not entirely lost. I did have my Johnny Seven that was getting more interesting the longer I trudged around town, living proof of the old adage that distance makes the heart grow fonder. But there was something else to look forward to on that particular day. Every kid in town knew that it wouldn't be long after supper that evening that we could all meet up at a place everybody called the Old Grey Lady. By far, it was the largest building in town, a colossus of incredible proportions and endless fascination. It was bigger than any church we knew and certainly a lot more fun to be inside. You didn't have to memorize Latin answers as Sister Mildred had me do earlier that year to prepare me for becoming an altar boy. You didn't have to have homework to hand in like we had to in school. In fact, the Old Grey Lady was a place you didn't have to do anything at all. You could just sit and watch that incredible parade of human character pass by in all its wonderment and glory. It had been built in the late 1940s and sat on Main Street just west of St. Joseph's High School where I had learned to memorize those Latin answers for Sister Mildred and where I remember looking out of her classroom wishing to God I was over at the Old Grey Lady. To some it was just a big old barn with no artificial ice, no real heating system, no public washrooms fit for more than farm animals, and spectators who were led inside to find no comfortable seating. In fact, there wasn't a single seat in the whole place set up for the paying public. Only hard, pockmarked wooden benches, or worse, out in the arena area, those cascading wooden platforms that looked like scaffolding meant for giants to step up on to look over the boards to see the game. From a distance, though, especially for a boy mouthing incomprehensible Latin, the old grey lady was a glorious, shimmering diamond in the rough. Walking up from the Berries Bay Post Office along Main Street on one of those hot summer evenings in late August, a reddish sun settling over top of it, that old grey lady rose up towards the heavens with an almost mystical, shimmering appearance. About 125 feet wide and 250 feet long, its silver-gray roof of galvanized tin rose up to a peak maybe 100 feet off the ground. It had four walls made of the same gray tin, with occasional outcroppings of dark gray cinder blocks. Its front and back had high, heavy double doors, one set serving as the public entrance off Main Street, and an even bigger set at the far end where ice scrapings were removed and an intriguing homemade Zamboni was parked. High up above both sets of doors, but below the peak of the roof, there were two huge arrays of dusty windows made from dozens upon dozens of individual glass rectangles, some of them broken, but taken together maybe 50 feet wide and 20 feet high, all to let in natural light and the occasional bewildered bird. Inside was a thick sheet of black pavement, surrounded by official ice hockey boards that enclosed a natural ice surface lovingly made and maintained between the middle of December and the end of March. 
Opposite center ice were two enclosed wooden player benches, one for the home team, the other for the visiting team. And across the way on the west side was an oversized penalty box that was usually occupied for most of the hockey games I either saw there or played in. It was Barry's Bay's answer to the Roman Coliseum, a place where the home team could literally fight it out with a team from Whitney, Killaloo, or elsewhere from the upper Ottawa Valley and where, on one of those great days near the end of March, when the hockey season came to a grinding halt before the warmer April weather destroyed the ice, it was not uncommon to see a crowd of 1,500 fans, most egging on the likes of Mark Yantha, Andy Edmansky, Jackie Billings, Shorty Prince, and my favorite, Jerome Tubby Sabolsky. For the longest time, I never knew Jerome's real name. Everybody just called him Tubby, but he was a wonder to behold. The iconic goaltender for the Barry's Bay senior men's hockey team, he had this way of playing net that was as exciting as all get out. Mainly because it was his sporting habit to wait for a particularly nasty opposing player to skate by him, and if that player had harassed Tubby in any way during a previous play, Jerome would, without warning, swing his goalie stick high up in the air and either whack that bad guy on the ass as he shot by the hometown net, or else Tubby would time it so he just missed the guy's head by a fraction of an inch. Had it connected, we all knew it would be worse than what the Lions might do to those unlucky gladiators during Roman times. Talk about entertaining sport. Indeed, the old gray lady, with its usual thousand and one screaming fans on any given Sunday, was one gigantic spectacle. And for a ten-year-old boy, its excitement just wasn't what was happening on the ice. Excitement was everywhere. My two favorite people to watch, other than the hockey players themselves, were usually among those Sunday crowds. One was a relative of mine, a cousin, I want to say once or twice removed, but he was usually removed from almost every game he ever attended. He would crawl up along the roof rafters, huge 2 by 12 timbers that were bolted together to form large trusses where you could easily hide. Anyway, this cousin of mine would crawl up there, high up over the ice surface, and wait quietly enough with his trusty bag of cold fish, catgut, farmyard offal, and the odd skinned carcass of a dead muskrat. During the first two periods, there wasn't a peep out of them. But then in the third period, when the hometown boys got down to the real business of winning, or God forbid, losing the game, he would fire down a ball of that dead fish or muskrat guts, aiming for an opposing player, or usually the referees who had come up from Renfrew to officiate the league game. Where he got all those grimy guts, nobody could say. But of course, the cops would eventually cart him off with everybody applauding and the cops trying to look like they were enforcing the law. But everybody knew they'd only take him outside and after giving him a warning, let him go. That is, so long as he was caught trying to help out the right team. Or it hit what even the cops considered were sometimes the worst refereeing in all of Christendom. The second person I loved to watch, and she was one tough bird, shall also remain nameless. I can't say for sure that I wasn't related to her, but she had more than a few cousins and friends on that Barry's Bay senior team. She'd grown up locally in a very rambunctious family of very competitive sportsmen who all loved hockey, baseball, hunting, and fishing. But boy, did they hate to see the hometown get beaten. Especially during those Sunday afternoon playoff games, she'd get herself along the boards near the blue line, and whenever a particularly nasty player from a visiting team shot by on a breakaway, well, this lady, and I use that term loosely, would jerk up a purse hidden behind the boards, and she'd wind up and whack that opposing player as hard as she could in the chest or in the 
the back of his head. She'd usually wait, like my cousin with the muskrat, until the third period, and usually she didn't get more than one good wallop off before the cops would sit down on either side of her for the rest of the game. She'd behave herself for a while, but then, if the hometown boys were still losing, she'd break out with the most god-awful shouting and not always using the Queen's English. There were some swear words I learned from her I'm still afraid to use. The best of times, however, were to be had, at least from a ten-year-old boy's point of view, elsewhere. Places like the boiler room, where the arena management and rink rats hung out, firing up the hot stove with slab wood, or adjusting steam knobs for God knows what purpose, because there was no place in the arena that seemed to have any heat. That boiler room belonged to the Admanskys, especially Pete and Conrad, and those others of their clan who all seemed to be mechanically inclined. The ones with sporting talent, like Andy and Howie, were in the dressing room or on the ice doing their best for the hometown. But if a kid played his cards right, one of the rink rats in the boiler room might let you tag along, as he was instructed by Pete to deliver a pail of cold water between periods to the resting teams in their dressing rooms tucked in behind the players' benches. It was in those dressing rooms where a kid could see all manner of strange things happening. For example, both teams had this collection of special quart bottles as part of their standard equipment. They were all taped up on the outside with black hockey tape and constantly being passed around among the players. Man, were those boys thirsty. But the strangest thing, nobody ever seemed interested in drinking from that cold water pail we had lugged in for them. At the time, I put it down to another one of those mysteries of life that no ten-year-old boy was ever likely to figure out at least not until they got to be teenagers or maybe legal drinking age. Of course, most times between periods, that crowd of well over a thousand thirsty fans would all try to cram into the one waiting room with a canteen in order to get a hot dog or a hot chocolate. And boy, was that place packed. Everybody was cheek by jowl with cigarette smoke and ashes flying everywhere. Meanwhile, back down towards the floor, there I was, a half-pint kid working his way through the crowd. Honestly, a kid would get more elbows to the head and body checks to the torso and have his feet stamped more than a few times between periods. It was like playing next to Gordy Howe along the boards. He'd pummel you if he thought the referee wasn't looking. Yet it was worth it, if only to get out into the main lobby by the ticket window and watch the cursing and swearing that would often go on involving the guy who was boxed in behind the net operating the red light to signal a goal getting scored. Between periods, that poor guy would often step out from his little telephone booth-sized room and stand in the main lobby and maybe want to freshen up with a cigarette or two. And wouldn't you know it, along comes somebody who starts telling him he's blind in one eye and can't see out of the other. Somebody else chips in and says it wasn't a goal at all when he flicked the red light switch on near the end of the second period, or it should have been a hometown goal in the first period. And before long, that poor guy who's supposed to know the difference between an official goal being scored and one that wasn't, well, he's all flustered and threatening to quit. And somebody would have to get one of the referees from Renfrew who would tramp in on their skates. They'd try to calm everybody down, but would often have to resort to that one argument to end all arguments. Well, boys, if you don't like the way Bob here is scoring the game, I guess we can always let him go home right here and now to the peace and quiet of the little woman, and we can call this game and award the victory to Kill Lou or Whitney or whoever it is that is beating the pants off you Barry's Bay bozos at this very moment. There would then be dead silence before somebody would timidly say, 
Well, uh, well, if that's the way Usby wants it, I guess uh, we'll let it run its course. But I'm warning y'all, I'm keeping an eye on both of yous. I'm keeping an eye on both of you, because I don't like the way you're calling this goddamn game, you smarty-pants referee. With a little luck, a siren would sound operated from the press box above and where the public address announcements were made about who officially scored or assisted what goal. And within a minute or so, the main lobby and both waiting rooms would all be emptied out again. We just scatter like minnows to our respective places to watch the final period. Of course, the real winter season started at the Old Grey Lady on Boxing Day, usually with public skating that very evening. That's when many of the village kids would show up, most of us for the first time that winter. Given everything else going on in our lives, what with the run-up to Christmas, it was hard to juggle any slim chance to go skating there before Christmas. Chances were it wouldn't be cold enough to make the natural ice surface until December. And if there was a big game before Christmas, like the Flying Fathers coming to town for a fundraising exhibition with local hero Father Les Costello, well, the boys in the boiler room made sure the good fathers had excellent ice for their hockey game and to hell with those public skaters who were mostly just those pesky kids, more trouble than they were worth. On Boxing Day, though, it was a different story. Nobody ever scheduled a hockey game on that day, so as far as me and my grade 5 classmates were concerned, that evening belonged to the world of pint-sized kids. On Boxing Day, right after supper, somehow we'd pry open that huge, heavy front door. Sometimes it would take a few of us to pull it open, and then we'd race inside, reach up and slap down our quarters on the ticket counter in the main lobby. Somebody would give us back 10 or 15 cents, enough for a Mountain Dew or hot chocolate, and then we'd go into one of two waiting rooms and sit on those black wooden benches all cut up with skate marks or guys fiddling with their jackknives and we'd change out of our winter boots and slap on our skates before heading out onto the ice. There we'd meet up with all the neighborhood kids that lived near the arena. The Billingses, Murrays, Conways, Lerbetskys, Micahs, Palbeskys, Kulises, Rambleskys, and with luck we'd also see a whole gaggle of Edmanskys, Shalas, Galkas, Yanthas, and Princes, and just about anybody who could catch a pair of second-hand skates. Most of us got our skates from older siblings as hand-me-downs, and most of us learned to skate on backyard rinks or nearby ponds, lakes, or creeks, with their constantly shifting ice that would crack and often trip up even the best skaters. Nothing like that ever happened at the old gray lady. Pete Edmansky and Conrad Edmansky kept their natural ice in pristine condition. And if anyone ever ended up flying through the air with the greatest of ease, all that meant was that they got body checked fair and square in a real hockey game. Or else, if they were from out of town, they got schmucked with some lady's purse or the innards of a muskrat. So there I was that evening on Boxing Day 1964 with my grade 5 classmates. We all had survived Christmas, and somehow that first public skate felt like heaven itself because we were with our friends, kids of our own age, and so our Christmas presents, with or without batteries, really didn't seem to matter. Rather, it was about being with our own age group, doing something together, learning how to skate without any adults or teachers being around. It was just so good to be, well, just us. Okay, maybe not just us. There were the rink rats who patrolled the ice surface during all those public skates, looking more like they were patrolling those Nazi concentration camps that we'd all seen in the endless war movies that came to the Bay Theater for our Sunday matinees. Those rink rats always seemed to be threatening us with dirty looks, as if to suggest we were all to be turfed outside if we so much as even thought about breaking up one of their made-up rules. Of course, we knew there was only really one rule during public skating, no rat tails. 
but that rule seemed against nature itself, or at least against that one thing that was most fun to do. Rat tails, besides being beautiful to watch and great fun to be part of, were also very simple to organize, even for a kid. A few of us would hold hands, maybe a boy, then a girl, then a boy, because you could never get two grade five boys to hold hands. So two or three of us would hold hands at first, and then, as we slowly skated counterclockwise around the entire circumference of the rink, we'd pick up speed and take on another boy, then another girl, until there was a long line of us, maybe ten, all flying pell-mell around the rink. And just when you think it couldn't get any better, the best would happen. The end of the line closest to the boards would take on the absolute worst skater we could find, usually a guy, while at the other end of the line, closest to center ice, there would be the best skater who anchored the line, working like he held the business end of a long tug-of-war rope, with him tugging in the opposite direction to that lousy skater at the other end. Then the guy near center ice suddenly jams on the brakes, like he was flicking the wet end of a beach towel, and he swings that line of ten-year-olds as fast as he can until they go flying around the end of the rink with only one of two possible results. Either the worst skater goes flying into the boards and takes out, like bowling pins, an army of other unsuspecting skaters, or, if everybody in the line stays standing up, that line, like some fishing net, scoops up those unsuspecting skaters until they all get flattened like pancakes and go sliding into the boards. Bedlam, of course, ensues, and everybody breaks up laughing, and nobody is supposed to get hurt or even get caught. I don't remember anybody ever getting hurt, unless you count your pride, slightly bruised elbows or sore tushes, when we all slammed into the boards. But I do remember, on more than one occasion, one of those rink rats showing up and, and picking one of us up and giving him the bum's rush out the front door. Usually we were back inside within ten minutes, so no real harm done. Still, those rat tails were to die for. So much fun, no matter where you were in the line. Everybody ended up belly laughing, and if you asked any of us at the time, I'd bet most of us would say it was more fun than Christmas morning without batteries. Why? Because it was something we did as a group. In some ways, it was our own unique 1964 answer to those old card games from the 1920s and 30s Christmas bazaars. Nearly 60 years later, I don't recall what that Johnny Seven really felt like in my hands or what new Christmas toys exactly I so desperately needed those batteries for. But I can still remember holding hands along one of those rat tail lines and hearing the wild laughter of Danny Kelly, Joanne Billings, Richard Beanish, Kathy Japeski, Julie Kitts, Mary Glavchesky, Roseanne Galka, Anna Rambleski, and Sharon Hawley, all laughing with such delight that the sound of that laughter has lasted within me for more than five decades. Take Sharon Hawley. Her father worked for Ontario Hydro, and before we got past grade five, she was gone. Her father transferred out of town. I never saw her again. But I remember exactly what she looked like, a shy ten-year-old girl from Barry's Bay with a laugh you could never forget. The old grey lady had that kind of grip on us back in grade five, when we would spend an evening or two there every week all through the winter at public skating. It was also a place where there was all manner of summer entertainment to be had there as well. Wrestling matches, monster bingos, the annual circus in Midway that arrived every August and tucked itself between the old grey lady and St. Joseph's High School, or those pick-up baseball and football games that we used to have there later on as teenagers. 
Curiously, my favorite memory that Boxing Day 1964 didn't happen inside the arena, but rather just outside of the old gray lady. It was after public skating had ended, and a group of us had taken off our skates, put our boots back on, and gone outside into this strange, crisp winter night air. While inside the arena, it had been raining, but everything was now covered with a thin, cold layer of ice, and yet a low-lying fog. Only the rain had turned into freezing rain, and then back into just rain, or whatever it was. The storm had passed, and now there was this warm moonlight and a clear black sky overhead with a peculiar electricity in the air, as if the northern lights might be coming up later that night. I don't know who noticed it first, but as we walked towards Connie Lerbetsky's house, somebody looked up behind her house, and up there was a little hill tucked in between the old gray lady and where Joanne Billings lived. Ordinarily, in the daylight hours, we used to take our toboggans and sleighs up to the top of that little hill and slide down its gentle slope. It was only a drop of perhaps 50 feet over a distance of a few hundred yards. It was always fun, but that night after we had left the old gray lady behind, that little snow-covered hill glistened with such a peculiar whitish-blue shimmer, almost a counterpoint to those strange reddish evenings in August when the sunsets over Barry's Bay felt ethereal. There was just something so inviting about the sparkle of that snow up there against the clear black sky towards Anna Rombleski's place that had made that hill into something positively magical. Undoubtedly, it was one of the most unusual winter nights I would ever remember. A strange combination of atmospheric conditions and freshly deep snow laid out in such a way as to give it a very tough crust, strong enough to carry the weight of half a dozen ten-year-olds. And yet the freezing rain was gone, the night had warmed up, the sky cleared, and the moon had majestically risen up. With Orion to the south, the Big Dipper overhead, and Cassiopeia swirling about enough to make us all dizzy, we all somehow convinced our parents to let us go tobogganing up there that evening, even though it was very late. The actual sleigh riding that night involved perhaps only half a dozen of us, in an event that probably lasted less than half an hour, because we were all tired from skating. But I can still hear the sound of those toboggans and aluminum saucers gliding down that magical, strangely crusted snow, as though we were in the best place in the whole wide world that we would ever know. Only I didn't know it at the time. That was Barry Conway and his personal essay, The Old Grey Lady. We hope you enjoyed these two local walks down memory lane and would encourage you all to write your own memoirs of what it was like to grow up where and when you did, be it in the upper Madawaska or Opiongo River Valleys, the Bonachere or York River Valleys, or any other interesting place that might remind us all that any life is immeasurably worth living anywhere, if only because it is a story worth remembering and sharing with the rest of us. We all have interesting stories to tell, and we all love to hear those unique, individual stories. It's what makes us who we are. Stories to remind us all of what Boxing Day can mean to those little street urchins, probably still out there wandering the laneways of Barry's Bay, even today, again, looking for batteries. Or perhaps later tonight, hoping against hope for a bit of icy snow crust, a clear night sky, and a wild sleigh ride with some of their grade 5 classmates. Christmas really is all about children making such great memories that are definitely worth remembering more than 50 years on. 
I'm Kristen Marchand, and for the dozens of talented volunteers who helped make the Opiongo line possible over the past year, for all of the wonderful support we get from that other marvelous group of local volunteers, the Station Keepers MV, we wish you a very Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. Good day, and God bless.